The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Come holy light, guide divine, now cause the word of life to shine. Teach us to know our God aright, call him Father with delight. From every error keep us free, let none but Christ our master be, that we in living faith abide in him our Lord with all our might confide. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, happy Pentecost to you. Uh, a couple words, a quick words about Pentecost. Um, because this sermon I chose, I went with the talk and unfolding the Tower of Babel, if you haven't been to church yet. So we'll be looking at the Old Testament lesson mostly. It certainly has applications for the Pentecost season. But a couple of quick words on Pentecost that are often maybe misunderstood or misapplied is the, um, the famous speaking in tongues. And um, so the, the, which church body is famous for speaking in tongues? The Pentecostals, Right. So, I mean, it makes sense that they'd be... So there's lots of different theological issues that we'd have there, uh, not the least of which would be what we would refer to as enthusiasm. That is, that God works apart from his means and somehow can zaps, zaps faith into people and, and they're, they're looking for certain works as evidence of salvation and so forth. But the big thing there is if you know a Pentecostal... I went to high school with a, with a couple of Pentecostal kids and uh, I always remember, like, before... Before school, it was like we had the FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes or whatever. And I remember this one, we were like together. And I, you know, I'm a Lutheran, which means I'm not big into like these long, elaborate prayers from the heart. I'm like, all right, get to the point. <laughs> and this guy's like, dear Jesus, I'm like, what? What is going on? I mean, I'm like a 16-year-old kid. I've never really encountered that before. And I was like, what's wrong with Joey? You know? Uh, so you look into it a little bit more like, wow. So there's this, um, I mean, so someone's teaching him that this is not only like appropriate, um, but this is evidence of faith. If you really have faith, then you'll have the, you'll, you'll have the Holy Spirit, which we would agree with, there's no way to have faith without the Holy Spirit. And yet, the certainty for one to look for evidence of the Holy Spirit, let's say, um, it's like looking at my life as some kind of evidence of my abounding faith, and I'm always going to find sin when I look at my life. I know I've told you guys this a million times, but like it's, our, our sinful flesh is always drawn, drawn back to this. That's why Jesus is always teaching about it. But the idea is, if I'm looking inward... For evidence of faith, evidence of sincere salvation giving faith, I'm going to look at myself and say, okay, do I, I mean, I can say I believe with my, life, with my lips, but does my life show a sincere faith? So I look at my life and I'm trying to determine is, is it good or bad? Is there good fruit or bad fruit? And what what tool do I have to define or to determine, to measure whether something is good or bad? The law. So the only way that I can look at my life and ascertain if it's good is to use the law, which Paul says always does what? Always accuses, always convicts, always condemns, always kills. So the law is there, and the law is certainly good, and the law does 
describe good fruit. But we just have to always remember that we are in our sinful flesh, and as long as we are, even our good works are going to be corrupted by our sinfulness. Uh, so, so even if you're able to find with the, with the magnifying glass of the law some kind of sincere work, good work, like, oh, I, I, I helped my neighbor, then the law comes to you and says, well, sure, but you didn't help that neighbor. You helped the guy on one side of your house who's kind of nice to you, but you didn't help the guy on the other side of the house who's kind of a jerk. And if you help him, then what about the guy across the street or the guy from work? And the, the homeless guy, the, neighbor, the one Naperville homeless guy who lives on Naper and Ox. He doesn't want help. That's a long story there. Um, but you see, so the law is always raising the bar. So it's not, it's not meant to be something for us to climb up to heaven with. And the Good Samaritan actually today is going to, we'll talk about that with our, with our, our content of Luke 10, the Bible study we're going to get to. But um, anyway, so for the Pentecostal, to be to look if I if I know if I have the Holy Spirit because I don't want to go to hell and I want to make sure I have faith and the only way I know I have faith is that I've got the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to manifest itself in these these ways that I can see such as speaking in tongues this renewed life which is going to mean I mean even think about that if I say a renewed life it's not it's not it's not a wrong thing to say that after a person is given the gift of faith they're going to be trying to do good toward their neighbor. The fruits of faith. Show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So that we, we're, we're promised this, where there is faith, the fruit goes. The fruit grows. But when I start looking at, at the fruit, I'm never going to be able to satisfy the law and I'm always going to find myself back in despair. And so that's the, what we would say, one of the errors of Pentecostalism. Not the least, so I, sorry to go off on that, but the, the issue with Pentecost, the reading, is that, uh, if you recall your Acts 2 reading, it's kind of a lengthy one today, you have all these people gathered together for the Feast of Pentecost, which was already a, was already a feast before it was kind of like brought into Christendom. So Pentecost was 50 days after, well, the idea is it's, it's, the, it's 50 days after um, Passover. So think, it's like associated with the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. 50 days after the exodus from Egypt, and they wander in the wilderness and they receive the Ten Commandments. So Pentecost, had, it was already an Old Testament feast. And, uh, but anyway, so everybody was gathered together in, in Jerusalem, and you, you were supposed to go to some of these key feasts. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Booths, some other feasts. Uh, if you could, if you're all possible, you go to those feasts. But it's expensive to go, so you don't always get to go. That's why it's a big deal, because you got me thinking about how it works. You shut down the farm. You know? If you have somebody watch your cows, then that means they don't have, they don't, they're not going to the feast. If they have cows. Would they have cows? I don't know. But pigs is they wouldn't have. There you go. Um, so these, all these people have been gathered in Israel, and they're all in Jerusalem from all over. I mean, nations spreading out throughout the known world. And so they're going to be speaking different dialects, different tongues. And what's, what's key here is that when, they, when the disciples receive the Holy, the Holy Spirit descends on them in, in tongues of fire, whatever that means, I mean, it's often depicted as like a, a small torch of flower, fire on top of their heads. But you can, you can render the Greek to be like, they were straight up. They looked to be like encompassed, engulfed in flame. I mean, there's... Something was jarring about this. 
And, but what drew their attention was they're walking through the streets, going to buy their pigeon to do their sacrifices or whatever, with a bunch of people that don't speak their language. I mean, imagine being in a foreign country where you don't speak, you, know, you have like your like Google Translate out, you got your little book, you're flipping through to find the banyo. <laughs> and uh, you don't recognize, and you hear coming from somewhere like some clear, clearly articulate speaking English person that speaks, you're like, yes! Can you tell me where the bathroom is? Can you ask them where the bathroom is? I really gotta go. So, so that's, the, that's the joy with which they have heard their own voice and they, they hear their own dialect from all these people who have no reason to be, have no business speaking those languages. They're not from that area. They would know them. And so they're speaking, there's this, this gospel is going out and with, with a clarity of content. In contrast to my friend from high school when he's speaking in tongues and how it's often portrayed within Pentecostalism is this, it's incoherent babblings of some other language that is the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's not what this is. There is a, they're speaking with a clarity. It sounded like incoherent babbling to everybody else, just as most foreign languages might sound to us. You say, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. But if you know the language, your ears kind of perk up, right? So that's the context. They're not speaking in gibberish. They're, they're speaking in specific languages. And then what's helpful is, so we, got, we have people from all over the known world have kind of come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Now they've heard the gospel. They have the gift of, gift of faith. And then where do they go? Home. With the gospel on their lips. And so now with Pentecost, we have the spreading of the gospel into the world. And so as we think about the, like the lectionary or the, the seasons of the church, as we get into now, we've walked through the life and teaching of Jesus, uh, and now he's died and ascended. And the Pentecost season, the summer season, is, is the time of the church. Pentecost day, the color is red, uh, associated both with the giving of the Holy Spirit and fire at Pentecost. That's the main thing. But... The next week will be Trinity Sunday. I think we go white for Trinity Sunday and we get to say the Athanasian Creed, the long, the one long creed that we say once a year, one full diet in Bible study next week. But then the color changes to green for ever, <laughs> all through the summer. And um, the reason is, so green is the color of life and growth. It's the color of the, the, the church growing and living. And so the readings, like especially early in Pentecost, the first readings are usually taken, instead of from the Old Testament, they're taken from the book of Acts. And so we see the, the growth and life of the church in its early days, right? And, uh, and so we, and we see the teachings of Jesus throughout the season of Pentecost that have application for the Christian life, the growth in the Christian life, which is also then the growth of the Christian church. Um, let's see. What else do I want to say about that? The other interesting thing in the, in the epistle lesson, if you didn't catch it uh, in the early service, you can grab your bulletin and look, but there's this, as Peter unfolds what's happening here, Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Like that stopped people before. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So what he's saying is, so, he's, so they're saying these guys are drunk, they're just talking in gibberish, which, I mean, if, if drunkenness gave the ability to speak in clear, distinct foreign languages, that's a pretty cool 
should be encouraging drunkenness in colleges. <laughs> That's a pretty great profession. You speak in all these languages? Well, no. Uh, it's only the third hour of the day, but what's happening here is what Joel was talking about. So the, the Old Testament prophet Joel has talked about this situation. What situation? In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And this is it. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What does it mean to prophesy? What, what word is often connected or, or, or used synonymously with prophesy? Prophecy. prophecy. So what does it mean to prophesy? If I'm like, if I'm walking up to a prophet, I'm like, I'm going to ask him something. What am I expecting to hear from the prophet? What, what, about what? Something about the future. So we associate, and, and usually in the Old Testament, uh, very often that was the case. The prophets are talking about something that's coming up, trying to warn about some kind of future foreboding thing. But we associate prophecy with fortune telling. Get out your crystal ball, Isaiah. Right? That's not what's going on. That's not what the prophets were about. The prophet's main thing is to be the voice box of God on earth. So if you're curious about what God is thinking, you ask the prophet. That's why when you look at like, well, really the whole history of Israel, especially towards its decline, whenever somebody gets in trouble, like King Saul, when he gets replaced by David, his big thing was that he was like getting impatient, waiting on God to talk to him through the prophet. And so he calls up the witch of Endor, which is also where the Ewoks are from. <laughs> A very limited audience to that joke. But the... So the, the, he calls up this witch because he's trying to get a voice from a, a, a dead prophet that's come before. So, so he's, he's removed himself. He's cut himself off from the voice box of God that he has placed in this world. So the prophet comes when, when King David does his David Bathsheba famous sin. He sends Nathan, the prophet. Nathan means gift. And Nathan speaks harsh law to David to turn him in repentance. God sends his prophets to speak words of harsh law. I mean, especially when we're, we're reading it in the Bible, it's usually they're speaking bad news. Well, it's because what's happened is something bad, and God's sending the prophet to speak words of judgment and law that are themselves ultimately a gift of repentance to turn people back to God. So Isaiah will always be speaking harsh words, but then he's also following that up with things like, comfort, comfort my people. You get Isaiah... Is it 50, uh, 51, 52, 53, 54? Is all the suffering servant stuff that we hear on Good Friday, which is ultimately a pro it's a foretelling of what's going to happen. There's something happening in the future, and that's certainly true. But what's significant about the prophet is God is having his word spoken on earth, removing, removing a lack of clarity and bringing a word of clarity from God to his people. And when people are trying to talk to God, they go through the prophet. They go through the intercessor. So like whenever, um, when Israel gets busted after the, the Ten Commandments fiasco, like constantly they're always making, pro they're always doing stupid things. And then Moses is like, well, God's going to wipe you off the face of the earth, you idiots. Sorry. And then, then they pray not to Yahweh, but to Moses. And they say, ask God not to destroy us. And interestingly enough, 
when God was like, God was telling Moses, we're gonna I'm going to destroy these people. And Moses actually says, don't do it. That's the intercessor's role. He's actually, God sends Moses to speak his promises even back to himself. God, you've promised not to destroy these. You put your name on these people, you're going you're gonna to hold tight with them. Moses is saying that back to God. And then Moses is also speaking that same word of sometimes harsh judgment, sometimes comforting gospel to the Lord's people. Ultimately, that's, that's what prophecy is. It's often maybe to do with future stuff, and especially in the Old Testament, because the only, the main thing, really the everything in the entire Bible is gearing up for what? The coming of Jesus. That's the whole point. So the seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis is ultimately, you see, the entire Old Testament is, is, is showing, obviously revealing sin and showing God's people, but it's, it's, leaning, it's leading up to the lineage of Christ. Everything is building up to that. And so obviously prophecy is going to be about the future. But once Jesus comes, now prophecy isn't just only wrapped up in some future thing, but to have your sons and daughters prophesy is none other than have your three-year-old sing, Jesus loves me. Your sons and daughters prophesy because they're speaking with clarity the words of God in heaven about his view of sin that is atoned for and it's being declared on earth. So there's this disconnect that, I mean, we, we don't do the word any justice when we, when we limit it to this future forecasting, fortune-telling crystal ball stuff. Instead, it's this, the prophet, the prophesying, the prophets are speaking God's word of clarity of what he thinks about us towards sin on earth. And so we can, so that, and that cleans up the whole mess. Your sons, and, when, you, when you get this, this quote from Joel, you're like, what is going on here? Sons and daughters prophesy, old men dream, sermons are, servants are prophesying. Uh, so what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's a proclamation of the gospel. It was a future deal in the Old Testament, so prophets are always talking about future stuff. But for us, it's actually, it's a past thing. Now, to be sure, there's certainly future things like the specific the return of Christ but we have clarity on that and when someone masquerades as someone who has clarity about future um, future events having to do with God apart from God's word you're stepping away from God's word because God hasn't promised that they're going to have that that clarity and so time after time you see people claiming oh God's going to return on such and such a date right and because of all these we did the math on all these numbers in the Old Testament. If you, if you put a one on top of every time Yahweh's mentioned and whatever else, you can do the math and it adds up to July 5th, 2022. So you better cash out your mutual funds and enjoy life because he's coming. Ultimately, even those messages, I mean, we're familiar with these kind of things, this, this looming return of Christ is always preached to bring about fear. As though fear, the gospel wasn't getting people to believe in Jesus, so maybe fear will. Like that's consistent with the gospel of Jesus. Faith goes by hearing. And so now you got somebody saying, I know you don't believe anything that's in the Bible. And I know that God said that the Bible is the only thing that's going to bring about faith. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. None of that works. But I have special revelation apart from the scripture that on July 5th, 2022, God's coming back. So now you better jump on board. At least give us a try till July 6th, right? 
So ultimately, it's, it's, trying to, it's trying to bring about not even faith, not even a sincere faith, but trying to bring about some sort of a reaction, maybe in a, 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 a contrite life, some sort of life of repentance, which would be be scared of judging, eternal damnation. It's coming, so clean up yourself because he's coming, and he's coming soon. Now, those aren't true, those aren't false messages in the sense that's what the law clearly says. The end is coming soon, right? But you're not going to bring about sincerity of clean life by the law. You're just going to reveal more of the problem. Anyway, that's Pentecost and Joel and Prophet. Any questions or stuff about that before we finally get into Luke 10? I've delayed it long enough. It's like the third week of this. All right, well, look for if you haven't if you haven't been to church yet, look forward to hearing more about uh, the Holy Spirit and the Day of Pentecost in uh, both the really the the solution to the problem caused at Babel is the bringing the, all the scattered voices throughout the world, and then God brings the gospel to all those scattered voices. All right, Luke ten. So jump into our handout. Um, let's see where I want to go. I put the reading on there for you. You'll notice that the handout is yellow or gold because I'm trying to match the liturgical color of last week when I mass produced this handout. So it should have been red where I consistent, so my apologies there. The parable of the Good Samaritan, let's hear it. You want to grab a Bible if, if you want, otherwise I put it there in front of you if you're feeling lazy. I should make the font smaller to force you to get your Bible out, but here we go. Luke 10, and, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right. So let's start at the beginning here with the context. Who Jesus is speaking to. What was his job? How is he described? A lawyer, not in the sense that we kind of make fun of like ambulance chasers or that kind of stuff, but a lawyer in the sense of an expert in the, the Old Testament law. And so these guys, and the scribes are often, they're often thrown in together, the, the lawyers, the, so the teachers of the law, the scribes. The scribes are often known to be experts in the law because they're the, like the ancient Xerox machine. 
They're the ones who can write. And if you spend all day, when, when, you want your, when the kids are being punished, like, don't hit other kids in class. Write that 50 times. <sighs> I went, what did Harry Potter have to write in his hand? I will not. I will not tell lies. Write that over and over again. So the idea is when you write something enough times, you learn it pretty well. And so scribes know the law very well, as do the lawyers, those who wield it. So a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, which is the same Greek word when Jesus teaches us in the, in the Lord's Prayer to say, lead us not into temptation. And it's the same word of what the devil did to Jesus out in the wilderness put him to the test. So you get this almost, the thing we're praying against in the Lord's prayer regarding the devil and what the devil himself does to Jesus in the wilderness, putting him to the test. And so right away he stands up and Jesus, all right, here we go. To put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's the inherent problem with that, with that question? What I should do. But what, what kills it beyond that? I mean, you're certainly right. That's where we're going. It's all he's focusing on himself. He's asking a law question. But what does one do to have an inheritance? Someone else dies. You, you happen to be related to him. Or as that one country song goes, he just happened to have a drink with him at a bar like the day before he died or something. And now he leaves his whole estate to the guy. In any case, you do nothing. Someone else gives you what they have. So right away, it's, it's kind of showing, as we know theologically, with this, this problem of I can't do anything to inherit eternal life. And Jesus answers him interestingly. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So you can go about this in a couple ways. If he's saying, what shall I do? He's asking for what, the, the, what God has given us to tell us what to do which is what the law is, what is written in the law. But also what's written in the law is the answer to that question, what, what a person can do for eternal life. Like when you take the, the whole teaching of the Old Testament context, specifically, where, where would we say the law is summarized in the Old Testament? Where God puts them on stone? The Ten Commandments? As the Ten Commandments are starting off, he says, before he says, you shall have no other gods, we, we kind of learn the list, right? The, it's not like, the, it's not like the, the list just starts. The first commandment is, but it actually gives the context. It says, I am the Lord your God who led you out of bondage in Egypt. You are my people. And as my people, you have no other gods. So it starts with this message of mercy and salvation so the law, the law itself is, is given in the context of people who have already been saved by a merciful Lord. When I transgress those 10 commandments, by the way, when I have other gods, it's not just that it defines my sin, which it certainly does, but it also cuts me off from being God's people. I'm the Lord your God who led you out of bondage in Egypt. You are my people. And this is what my people do. This is what humans do. They breathe and they eat and they drink. When you stop doing those things, you stop being a living person, right? I am the Lord your God, you are my people. And if you're my people, here's the, what you do. So when you transgress these commandments, you're no longer of God. 
That's how significant our sin is. It's not just like a, we, we broke the rules at the pool, but we actually are cut off from God and need to be reconciled to him. That's why the New Testament is always talking about peace, eternal peace with God, the Father, reconciliation brought, because our sin is what cuts us off from that. So the law <clears throat> can be seen as answering the question, like it do, you don't do anything to do to, to earn your own salvation. The law can be seen in that way. The law doesn't promise you eternal life. It seems to in places where it seems like do this and you will live. Do this and you'll stay in the covenant. And so there's this promise that comes along with it. We can see it that way. And that's so Jesus is giving, him, giving that back to him. But we, we can also see it that even in those places where it says do this and you will live, it's given in the context of the promised seed of the woman and I'm the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. So law is not really this, this guidebook for salvation that this guy seems to think it is. So either way, Jesus kind of, it could go either way with it, but the guy's certainly confused about it. So he points him to the, the Torah, the Old Testament. What is the, if you, want, if you want to know what to do, look to the law. How do you read it? So, oh, and by the way, for, for us to, to think about that question, if, if I'm like, okay, what do, I need, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus has this assumption that you can do something to be saved. The problem is, where is Jesus headed right now? Remember after Luke 9, he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration and he sets his face on Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. Everything is toward his cross. Eternal life, and he knows this, we know this, reading it after the fact, but when someone comes to Jesus asking about salvation, eternal life apart from his cross, they're missing the point. But we have to always hear, Jesus knows the law isn't the, a, a possible way for us to climb ourselves up because he's headed there now. He's headed to the cross. All right. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he summarizes the law. A couple of different places in the Old Testament it does that. It summarizes what we say, the two tables. Love the Lord your God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. Which, by the way, is the post-communion collect that we fervently, uh, God would use the Lord's Supper to strengthen us in faith toward him and in fervent love toward one another. Because that's what the law demands of us. And so he asks for strength to be able to do that. So he gives them the answer. What does the, law, what does the law say? Well, here's the summary of the law. Love God with all you got and love your neighbor with your whole self. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Because that's what the law seems to promise. Uh, there's a lot of writing, a lot of ink spilled about this back at the time of the Reformation, especially like in Luther's bondage of the will. Because there's this idea that if the law commands you to do something, love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart, built into that command is the assumption that you have the ability to do it. Because it would be unjust and unloving for me to like ask my daughter to dunk a basketball and then get mad at her when she can't. And that's a foolish example, but like the, the idea is that God's commanding us to do something and he's attached to it such fierce punishments and, and promises then it would be unloving of him to, to give it. And so his giving of the command assumes our ability to keep it, which is different than what we talked about this a little bit last week. 
The fact that the law is there commanding things of us doesn't actually mean we have the ability to do it because we're born sinful. Our will is corrupt. So we don't have the ability to do anything good. I'm completely corrupted uh, to the core. So that's a helpful thing. When we, see, when we see commands in the law in the Old Testament or in the New Testament alike, even like right here, do this and you will live, that's what, the, that's what the law promises. It seems to imply our ability to do it. And yet we also know we don't have it. The New Testament certainly makes that clear. The Old Testament makes it Psalm 51.5, surely I'm sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me. I'm born sinful, my will is corrupted. Uh, St. Augustine actually said, and Luther quoted him in the Confessions, in the Augsburg Confession. No, no, large catechism maybe? Anyway, he says, God, we are unwilling, God makes the willing willing. So it's, we are by nature unwilling to believe or unwilling to live the Christian life and God is the one who breaks through and allows us to will or to do good. So the law might require it and even promise salvation, but that, that does not mean we have the ability to do it. And yet Jesus says to this man who asked a law question, he got a law answer. What do I need to do? Well, if you wanna be the one who does it, here's what you gotta do. Keep the law fully, both tables. Love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, interestingly here, he he, but he, desiring to justify himself, what does justify mean? Make make right. To make right, to, so to, to be righteous, to be declared righteous. So we think about it like, I love that, to use these practical examples of like kids who like push each other on the playground or something. Why did you push him? What's the, an well, the answer is immediate self justification. What you determined to be wrong was not wrong. It was actually just because he started it. He pushed me first, whatever the, whatever the reason was. So this thing that seems to be bad wasn't actually bad because it was called for. It's justified, right? So we understand that. So he was trying to justify himself. He's trying to say that he hasn't, he hasn't broken the law and any law that seems to be broken Eh, it's not broken, I can get, get my way out of this. So he's trying to self-justify, which is the, in, the inherent sinful problem. It's behind everything that cuts us off from God. It's our thinking we can, we can make ourselves right in God's eyes by our own doing. Like when you try to, if, if you ever like cleaned your, I don't know, grill or something, and you get like grease on all your fingers, and then you like try to open the door, <laughs> try to do anything at all, you're gonna make everything else dirt. So we're completely, we're completely incapacitated by our sin that everything we touch is gonna to be engreased in, in by, our, by our sin. So he's desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he goes after clarity on what point? So Jesus said, all right, so if you're gonna be saved on your own, keep the law, what does the law say? And he says, love God with everything you got, heart, soul, and mind. That seems to be pretty hard. And also love your neighbor as yourself. So notice he's like, well, I got the love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I got that down pretty well. Let's, let's make sure we're clear on who my neighbor is. Isn't that interesting? Instead of him saying, well, how, how can I possibly love God with everything? He he's not worried about the first command. He's, he's going after the second. And who, and who exactly is my neighbor? Person. What's that? He doesn't even acknowledge the first one, the horizontal of God and him. He just, 
Going right to the... Exactly. So it admits, admits, it exposes a, we call a self, a self-righteousness, where it doesn't even acknowledge how bad the problem is with God. And I actually think I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as broken as the law says I am. And now I'm actually not broken toward my neighbor, but I just want to make sure I know who my neighbor is because after all, it's up to me. I got to do it. I, so who is my neighbor? And that's what the law ultimately, the law always is going to say, okay, if I'm going to be saved by this, I need to get clarity on exactly what this, what this means. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers, stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. Now, according to the law, he is at that point unclean. He's laying on the side of the road and here's the the problem. He is unclean and yet he's not not fully dead. I'm not not all the way dead. (laughs) I'm feeling feeling better. (laughs) So, but he's been rendered unclean by this. And here's, the, here's what Jesus gets at, this, this mess, the trap of the law. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. So who's talking? The lawyer. He's talking to Jesus. That's the context. His heroes are the priests and the Levites who are supposed to know the law and keep the law better than anybody else. And as, he, as they come along, they are actually doing the right thing under the law when they pass him by on the other side. So as he says, a priest was going by. Why? When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why? You can't touch the unclean thing according to the law. And yet, has he loved his neighbor as himself? He's only half unclean. He's only half unclean. Either way, so the law has said, don't, don't, touch this thing. And yet the law also says, really, when you, when you, especially when you boil it down to what this, old, this lawyer did to Jesus, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. If you were on the side of the road, would you want somebody to help you? Right? So the, the, the law is trapped here. The, the priest is keeping the law and yet not keeping the law. So likewise, verse 32, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Again, the same problem. He's keeping the law, and yet he's not keeping the law. And there we see the law's job, and really the, what the hand, we're going to get after this with the handout, the rhetorical, what Jesus is doing to this man and to us in this conversation is actually killing us and putting us on the side of the road. He's rendering us unable to do anything. I'm trapped. I can't, I can't satisfy the law, no matter which way I go. Then a Samaritan, who is the, the, the Jews hate the Samaritans. We've been over that history before. They built a, they built a fake temple up in, on the, in the Northern Kingdoms. They were doing false worship. And there's this longstanding hatred between the Samaritans and the Israelites. And so Jesus here holds a Samaritan up highly. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, which is the word that Jesus always uses to describe his, his deep desire to have mercy on these hurting people. Yeah, it's it it said of him, like when he sees the feeding of the 5,000, or he sees the 5,000, um, on the, on the, plus women and children, and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion. 
He sees people hurting, he has compassion. The Greek, if you ever heard President Matt Harrison speak, he, like can't, he can't ever preach a sermon without quoting this. The Greek word here is splonk nidzomai, splonk. It's this idea of this guttural, guttural pain. He, 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 it hurts him so much to see us suffering. It causes him pain. He want, that's, that's compassion. It gets at what's, what's that compassion. And so it is for the Samaritan. He, he gets to where he was and he actually has compassion. He goes to him, he binds him up, and he lavishes gifts upon him. His own animal, he takes care of him, he puts him in an inn, says, hey, do whatever you gotta do, I'll repay him when I come back. Then Jesus asks an interesting question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now let's think back to the, when they started the conversation, what was the guy's initial question to Jesus? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus flips it around. Who was the neighbor to the man? It's a, it's a, it's a subtle difference, but it's key to, to seeing what Jesus is doing to this man. So it's not about all the guys who came by. It's, it's the one. So if you're asking, how do I love my neighbor as myself? Well, tell me who I'm supposed to love and who do I not have to love? What Jesus does is he flips it around and he says, who's the neighbor to you? It's the one who shows mercy. Who's the one who shows, neighbor, who's the one who shows uh, to be a neighbor, who proves to be a neighbor to the guy on the roadside? It's the one who's given mercy to him. And that's what he's getting at with this guy. It's not about you, who do I need to love to, to, to make sure I'm keeping the law perfectly? It's who needs to love you so that the law can be kept perfectly on your behalf. See, he flips it. It's a beautiful thing Jesus does here. It's masterful in what he's doing, both to the man and also to us. He flips it around. Let's see. Mercy has to be shown to the man before he can, before he can then show mercy to others. And that's why he says, he then, uh, as he answered, the one who showed him mercy and Jesus says to him, now you go and do likewise. And that's the Christian life. As those who have been thrown in the ditch by the law, rendered impossible for us to save ourselves according to the law. We're made dead in our trespasses and sins. And then we are shown mercy by the, by the Lord. And then only as those who have been shown mercy are we able to then go and do likewise. Actually aspire to keep the law that calls me to love my neighbor and love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? But we have to start with being shown mercy now look at your handout, and I had some key points here, and I'm not sure we're gonna to get to Mary and Martha today, but we'll save that for next time. The problem, the hearer wants to do good. So I'm under the bar, the rhetoric of the parable, what Jesus is accomplishing. Remember, the Bible, isn't, it's not just words about stuff, it's words that do stuff. And when Jesus talks to people, he's not telling people about stuff, he's doing something to them. God's word is living and active. So he's, he's turning people from sin. He's bringing repentance. He's giving faith when he's having these conversations. Uh, the hearer wants to do good to justify himself. So what does the parable do to the hearer of the parable, both the lawyer and us? So the hearer starts out self-justified. So one who does the law thinks he has accomplished it. And that's his own self-description. I've, I've done the law. The parable then places the hearer in the position of the priest and the Levite. So I'm in this tough situation now. I'm walking on the road. What would I do if I was on the roadside walking by and I saw this guy on the side of the road? For it is the priest and the Levite who live by the law and who crush others by putting them under the law. 
So if I were in their shoes, I would keep the law, which says don't touch them. But living by the law, the hearer is then thrown into the ditch, wounded and bleeding, because the law's job is to kill. For the hearer who wants to live by the law sees that in the perfect outward keeping of the law, the law has itself not been kept perfectly, for the neighbor has not been loved, which is the, the definition of the law given by the lawyer. Love, ultimately, all the laws, love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's, it kills them, puts them on the side of the road. Because the law has not been kept, the hearer is guilty. He has now been thrown into the ditch. Who will save him from death? Enter the Good Samaritan. Who is the Good Samaritan come on the scene? The Good Samaritan is the unexpected one. Unexpected, I mean, just, just despised and rejected by men. Samaritan. He's the unqualified one who helps and saves. The Good Samaritan in the parable is, of course, Jesus. He saves not as a law-teaching, law-abiding priest, which is what would have been expected for those who want to justify themselves will do so by the force and coercion of the law, always working from a position of strength and intimidation. But as an unexpected one, one who serves from a position of lowliness and humility, not coercing, but handing out gifts. That's how Jesus is always distinguishing himself from the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees. Like, who is this who teaches with authority? Because he's not coming out with this coercive word of law that the Pharisees were using. Jesus is coming in lowliness and meekness, giving of himself. The beneficial, that is the gospel teaching of the law from, Isaiah, from Hosea and Isaiah, it's getting at the heart. Your lips, uh, your lips are saying you're, you love me, but your heart is far from me. God's after the heart. Just doing the outward work doesn't actually satisfy the law. It's about the heart. That's the good, the beneficial teaching of the law. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I'll flip over. Uh, with Jesus as the unexpected rejected Savior, there is mercy and compassion. The sinner is pulled out of the ditch and given life. In this way, the parable impacts the hearer, as you and me and the lawyer, by taking him through these stages. First, the hearer is the priest and the Levite, living by the law and trying to justify self. And that's our, that's our natural disposition as, as sinners, sinner saints in this world. We're always turning to the law and trying to take it up as, as self-justifying. The hearer is then thrown into the ditch, for the hearer is given to see his sin and to know that by the law no man is justified and everyone dies. The hearer is third, saved by the unexpected, rejected Savior, the Good Samaritan. So then fourth, the hearer, hearing now, not with ears of law, but with ears of faith, now belongs to Jesus, the Good Samaritan, and as a servant of the Good Samaritan, now is sent out himself as a Good Samaritan. So we're able to actually serve and show mercy to others only as those who have been filled up with mercy. Being sent out to live not by the law, for the law doctrine of verse 25 and 29 has been obliterated by the parable, but by the gifts from the hand of the Savior, and to be a servant freely handing these gifts out to the neighbor. So now even the neighbor, who as a sinner trying to justify himself, is in his own ditch, will be pulled out of his ditch and taken to safety by the one who is freely handing out the gifts of Jesus. And that's us. That's the, our ability to, to see people in the ditch for whatever reason and actually show them mercy and love and, and guide them to Jesus, declare, them to, declare Jesus unto them. A quick word on, on Jesus as a Samaritan. This is it's a helpful, helpful way of seeing Jesus here. 
It's a great offense to the priest and the Levite that Jesus would associate himself with, with Galilee of the Gentiles and with the Samaritans. But Jesus has done even more than that. He's traveled in Samaria. He ate with them, which we know everybody he ate with was offending the Pharisees. He went into their homes. He healed them. He cast out demons. He's done everything to show that he wants to be one with the Samaritans. He wants to be known as one of them. When the, when the Jews accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan and having a demon, Jesus does confront them about their accusation of him having a demon, but he spends no time denying the charge of a Samaritan. It's an interesting twist. You're a Samaritan, you have a demon. I don't have a demon, but I'm okay with you calling me a Samaritan. Why? Obviously, Jesus is not a Samaritan by blood, but he does want to be known for being their savior and being in fellowship and solidarity with them and their sin in order to save them from their sin. When the Jews accused Jesus of being a Samaritan, as when they accused him of eating with drunkards and tax collectors, they were saying more than they knew about the gospel. Jesus wants to be associated with sinners. He wants to be the main sinner. Not to say that it's okay, but so that he can take our place. And so he picks the Samaritans who are the most despised in the ear of the hearer of the parable, the initial hearer of the parable, and makes him the hero, the one who shows mercy. Now we're at time, but any quick questions or comments on? Yeah, yeah time. Yeah, so this is, the, this is the, I guess the law is requiring someone to not touch, de- not touch death and even the blood itself is rendering this person un- unclean. So you'll have to look into that more. I, you didn't miss it. I, I intentionally avoided it and hope no one would call me on it, Ty. Thank you. No, but I actually don't, I don't, I don't know. Except for, except for we know they can't touch death, but then the lawyer would say, well, they're not dead. He's not quite fully dead yet, right? So what is it that makes him, what, what would make the lawyers unclean? Or what would make the scribe unclean? Something in the law. And that's ultimately Jesus' point. There's some, something about touching this would, make, would have rendered him unclean. Or even just the, the complication of it. Right? So not even wanting to, if I, if I engage in the situation, that's going to you know, put undue complication into my life. Well, that would suggest that, that touching him wasn't the problem. So, so Jesus... Jesus is, what he's exposing is not only do they avoid him for those reasons, for for complicating things, I don't want to complicate this, but it's actually, they were put in this tight spot of, I'm supposed to help him, but I don't want to help him because I'm trying to keep the law. The law is ultimately never satisfied. And that's that's where we're left with the guy guy who comes to Jesus. What must I do? And Jesus is saying, well, you're not going to do it on your own. The law cannot be satisfied. And that gets behind how we preach the law um, why we have the law gospel distinction, why we preach the way we do on these matters. It impacts the order of the divine service, the content of sermons. Everything gets at that point that the law fully condemns and leaves no way out. And then mercy is fully given. And only then can a life of good works and mercy flow. But it has to be ordered according to our Lord's way for, for genuine hearts of faith to be developed. Now, next week, we'll speak to the Athanasian Creed. So if you haven't heard it yet or in a while and, and, and you hear the, the, the somewhat potentially confusing Athanasian Creed on Sunday, bring your questions to Bible study. We'll hit that for a while. And then we'll hit the Mary and Martha parable in, in Luke chapter 10. The Lord be with you.